0: Psalm 51, 1 through 19. To the choir master, a Psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone to the Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin for i know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me against you you only have i sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment behold i was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me behold You delight in truth, in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. The word of the Lord.
1: So, we are uh, in a series on prayer, and specifically, we're looking at the book of Psalms because the Psalms is very famously known as the prayer book of the Bible. Uh, If you want to know what prayer is and how to do it, you need a teacher. Getting into the Psalms is like going to the school of prayer. And this morning, uh, we're looking at one of the most famous prayers. In the Bible. In fact, uh, one of the reasons this prayer is so famous is because it teaches us how to find something that every single one of us wants passionately. What is that? I think it's safe to say that every single one of us passionately wants to be a different person, to be a better person. Um, To use the language that we use nowadays, uh, we all want to live a transformed life. We're We're all looking for personal transformation. Uh, you know many of our most popular books nowadays are about this we go to conferences about this listen to ted talks about this uh, if you can afford it maybe you hire a life coach to help you find personal transformation personal transformation is a really hot topic but what is it and how does it actually happen one of the keys is right here in this prayer uh, This prayer shows us one of the main elements that is really necessary if you're going to live a truly transformed life. But when I tell you what it is, you're not going to like it. The key is repentance. And I know that when I say that word, that's a hard word for a lot of us to hear. If you're not a Christian here... This morning, it's easy to hear this word repentance and, and think that all it means is beating yourself up and demeaning yourself, which is the exact opposite of what our culture tells us we need to do in order to live a transformed life. Our culture would say, no, no, you need to affirm yourself. You need to believe in yourself if you want to live a transformed life. So when we hear the word repentance, a lot of times that's repugnant to much of our culture because it just sounds so negative. But this is also a really hard word if you are a Christian because it's really easy and far less traumatic to adopt the language of repentance without ever really entering into the heart of it. I think you know what I mean. You know, we can dress up like good little Christian girls and boys, say all the right things, act all the right ways, and all the time deathly afraid that if anyone knew what was really going on inside of our lives, they would be horrified. And so we just smile and wave and nothing really changes. See, this is a problem for us, and and here's the real problem. Whether you're a Christian or not, uh, our contemporary understanding of sin and repentance is so shallow and so superficial that we don't understand what it is we're rejecting if we're not a Christian, or what it is we're actually trying to do if we are a Christian. What we need is something that helps us to really enter into true repentance, because it the only way we're really going to live a transformed life is if we learn, and I mean really learn, what real repentance is. So this prayer shows us how. And I want to look at it this morning under two really big headings. Uh, this is a deep prayer. It's a complex prayer. As I said, it's one of the most famous. We could literally spend weeks going through uh, prayer like this. But this morning, I want to just look at it under two big headings. We're going to see that we need an encounter with truth and an experience of grace. Okay. An encounter with truth and an experience of grace. All right? First, we need an encounter with truth. Uh, this prayer is a prayer that was prayed by the great King David. He was the great king of Israel. And the, the very heading that we read before the actual prayer begins uh, gives us the backstory for this prayer. It talks about how David went into Bathsheba. It's referring to a story that's really the, the most wretched and horrible incident in the life of David. Uh, He took a woman named Bathsheba, who was not his wife, and he slept with her, and she got pregnant, and David wanted to cover up what he had done. So what he did was he called her husband, Uriah, in from the battlefield. Uriah was one of David's most trusted, faithful warriors. And he said, hey, Uriah, take a break, go home, be with your wife. And Uriah wouldn't do it. He was too noble. He wouldn't go home and and enjoy uh, the comforts of his own home because Uh, all of his fellow soldiers were still out on the battlefield, and he felt, I can't do that. And so he wouldn't do it. And so what David did was he sent him back out into battle, but he said, put Uriah out in the most dangerous part of the battle. And then he had all the other soldiers fall back from him to leave Uriah defenseless, and he was killed. It's the most wretched, horrible incident in the life of David. And you can see in this prayer, that's exactly where David is in the very beginning of this prayer. He's in agony. He's wretched. He's crying out for mercy. But look at where he is by the end. In verse 14, he says, my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. In verse 15, he says, my mouth will declare your praise. Do you see what's going on? I mean, he's brimming with confidence. He's full of joy. What happened to him? He experienced transformation, but the way he got there was repentance. What does that actually look like? Let's walk through the steps of what this looked like for David. And there are three things specifically that happened here, all right? And the first one is this. David takes full ownership of his sin. Real repentance means that we take full ownership of our sin. If you look at the very first four verses of the prayer, notice there's a lot of language that says, I and my, okay? Verse one, he says, my transgression. Verse two, my iniquity, my sin. Verse 3, again, my transgressions, my sin, and in verse 4 he says, I have done evil. Notice he doesn't try to shift the blame or make excuses or try to rationalize what happened. He doesn't say, yeah, I sinned, but that Bathsheba, bathing out in public like that for everyone to see, what did she expect was going to happen? He doesn't say, yeah, I had Uriah killed, but I wasn't actually the one who, who killed him. And besides, you don't understand the kind of pressure I'm under being king of Israel and all that. He doesn't say any of that. He doesn't shift the blame or make excuses. He takes full ownership of his sin. And it's really interesting, especially in our culture recently over the last handful of years, we've seen a real upsurge in uh, the levels of moral outrage in our culture. Isn't that true? For instance, in 2014, there was uh, a whole issue of Slate magazine that was called The Year of Outrage. And what they did was they tracked every single day of the year and, and they showed you what people were morally outraged over on social media. And one of the results of all this moral outrage is that there's been a lot more attention paid to um, people who have to apologize publicly. Have you noticed that? A lot more scrutiny on public apology. So there are a lot of articles that have been written over the past handful of years about what really makes a good apology. And one of the main things, one of the most consistent things that all of the articles say is that a real apology, a good apology doesn't blame shift, it doesn't make excuses, and it doesn't try to rationalize what happened. It just says, "I did this. I'm owning it. I'm taking full ownership." So it doesn't say, "Yeah, I know I blew up at you and called you lots of horrible things, but you kept pushing on me. So what did you expect was going to happen?" It doesn't say, "Yeah, I know that I lied to you, but hey, you do the same thing all the time. So who are you to judge?" Real repentance takes full ownership of sin. There's no blame shifting. There's no making excuses. There's no rationalization, okay? So first, repentance takes full ownership. Secondly, uh, real repentance gets out of denial about our capacity for sin. And here's what this means. In verse 5, notice David says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now, a lot of people read this and they mistakenly think that David is talking about his mother's sin. That's not what David is talking about. When he says, in sin my mother did my mother conceive me, he's not saying that his mother sinned by conceiving him or giving birth to him. He's saying, I brought my sin with me into the world. He's saying, from day one, my sin was with me in seed form. Give it enough water. Give it enough sunlight, and it grows up. In other words, David is saying, this sin in my life, what happened, everything that happened, this is not a freak event. It's not an accident. My life was on a trajectory that got me to this point. And here's why this is so important. A lot of times it's easy for us to look at our own lives and say things like, well, I would never commit adultery. I would never commit murder. I would never do something horrible like that. I'm not like those horrible people that do things like that. I'm better than that. With all due respect, no, you're not. One of the things that this prayer is showing us, one of the things the Bible is constantly showing us is that even if you never commit some horrible deed like murder or adultery, the potential for it lies within each and every single one of us. In fact, if you think that there are certain things that you would never do, that you're too good for it, you're better than that, Um, what that actually does is it puts you in a more dangerous position, a more vulnerable position, because when we blind ourselves to our own potential, our own capacity for sin, what happens is we let our defenses down. So for instance, one of um, my favorite places that talks about our own capacity for this is in John Steinbeck's book, East of Eden. It's a modern retelling of the story of Cain and Abel from Genesis 4, how Cain killed his brother Abel. Uh, one of the characters in the book is a woman who's basically a moral monster. Um, she burns her parents' house down while they're still in it. Um, and it gets worse from there. I mean, she just, the kinds of things she does in this book really are uh, monstrous. And so at one point, John Steinbeck is talking about this woman, and here's what he says about her. He says, she was what I have called a monster monster. And perhaps we can't understand the monsters of the world. But on the other hand, we are capable of many things in all directions of great virtues and great sins. And who in his mind has not probed the black water? Maybe we all have in us a secret pond where evil and ugly things germinate and grow strong. But this pond is fenced and the swimming brood climbs up only to fall back. Might it not be that in the dark pools of some men, the evil grows strong enough to wiggle over the fence and swim free? Would not such a man be our monster? And are we not related to him in our hidden water? What's in your hidden water? What if the only difference between you and, say, a Hitler is that your black water hasn't jumped the fence yet? given the right conditions, given the right circumstances, how do you know that there are certain things that you would never do? Real repentance means that we get out of denial about our own capacity for sin. And by the way, one of the things that really helped David with this was the presence of Nathan in his life. Remember, it talks about Nathan in the heading. How Nathan went into him. Nathan was a prophet who went to David right after David had committed the adultery and the murder, and he told David a story about a rich man who had lots of little lambs and a poor man who only had one little lamb. And the rich man wanted to throw a feast for his friends, but instead of taking one of his little lambs for the feast, he took one of the poor man, he took the poor man's only lamb. And when David hears this story, he's furious. And he says to Nathan, who is this guy? Because we got to make him pay. And Nathan says to him, David, you are the man. You know, men, by and large, love it when people tell them you're the man. This is one time when you do not want to hear those words. Nathan says, David, you're the man. And at that moment, all of David's illusions, all of his denial just fall away from him. He is just stripped of it. Because up until that moment, he'd been living in denial. He'd been blinded by his own capacity for sin. He had all these blind spots in his life. But at that moment, all the denial falls away and he's just stripped, standing there exposed for all the world to see. You see, um, by definition, Our worst sins are the ones that we're most blind to. By definition, our worst faults, our worst defects of character, our worst sins are the ones that we can't see. We all have blind spots, which means that we all need people, we all need Nathans in our life that are going to help us to see our blind spots. So here's the question. Do you have a Nathan in your life? Is there someone in your life that you've authorized and deputized to tell you the hard truths that you need to hear and Are you really willing to listen to them? Real repentance first is we take full ownership for our sin. Second, we get out of denial for our capacity for sin. But there's one third thing that we need to do that we see here. Uh, The third thing in this encounter with truth is you have to get to the heart of sin. You have to get to the real heart of sin. In verse 4, David says to God, against you, you only have I sinned. Now, a lot of people read that and they think, wait a minute, what about Bathsheba? What about Uriah, her husband? Didn't David sin against them? And the answer is, of course he did. What David is saying here is that I never would have sinned against them if I hadn't first sinned against God. That's what he's talking about. Now, what does that mean? Martin Luther was the founder of the great Protestant Reformation Uh, And at one point in his writings, he was looking at the Ten Commandments, and he, he pointed out something. He said, when you look at the Ten Commandments, you notice the very first commandment says, you shall have no other gods before me. And then after that first commandment, only after that, it starts getting into our behavior, things like, don't lie, don't kill, don't steal, don't commit adultery, things like that. Martin Luther says that we never break any of those other commandments unless we've already broken the first one first. In other words, the only reason that we do things like lying or coveting or stealing or things like that is if we have already first made something else more important in our life than God. We never break any of the other commandments unless unless we've broken the first one first. The true heart of sin is way deeper than our mere behavior. The true heart of sin shows us that it goes way deeper than behavior, deep into our relationship with God. So for instance... um, Let's give an example. Why do people go after money? An easy answer might be to say, well, because they're greedy. And maybe at some level, okay, yeah, that's true. But that doesn't go deep enough. Why do some people go after money? They go after money for different reasons. We have to go deep. The true heart of sin gets down deep into the motivational structures of our heart. So for instance, some people go after money because they want to buy lots of things. Uh, in order to impress people. They want the status. They want the clothes, the cars, the toys. They want to look good in front of people. Why? Because human approval is more important to them than God. They broke that first commandment. They had approval before God. Other people go after money, not because they want to spend it on lots of things, but because they want to sock it away. They want to put it on the bank, in the bank, never spend a dime. Why is that? It's because they value security, more than they value God. Do you see how this works? Um, anytime we put something in the place of God in our life, we're going to have breakdown in sin in all the other areas of our life. The true heart of sin is that real sin is not just breaking some rules. It means that it's, it's relational rejection of God. It's always first and foremost, a deep relational rejection Of God. And you really see that with David here in this prayer. Um, Notice how he says, Against you, you only. Not just against you, but you, you only. There's that doubling of the language, that repetition there. Um, In the Hebrew language, anytime something gets repeated like that, anytime you see that doubling of the language, that's always an indication of intense emotion. It shows us that David's heart is bound up with what he's saying. He's deeply emotional about this. So, for instance, you see uh, something similar later in David's life when his son Absalom dies and he cries out, oh, Absalom, Absalom, my son, my son, the doubling of the language, his heart is bound up in it. Or Jesus, when he went into Jerusalem, this is in Luke chapter 11, he doesn't just say, oh, Jerusalem. He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. How, how I would have gathered you together uh, as, a chick, as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. The doubling of the language shows intense emotion that David's heart is bound up with this. His heart is breaking over something. But what is his heart so worked up about? What is his heart breaking over? Notice he does not say, oh, poor me, poor me. He says, you, you. He's not talking about himself. He's talking about God. And this shows us the difference between self-centered remorse and real repentance. David's not talking about what his sin has done to himself. He's talking about what his sin has done to God. There's a difference between self-centered remorse and real repentance. Um, a lot of times we get really worked up about some, something we've done, some sin that we've done, and we can get really agonized about it, really weep and mourn and wail and cry about it. But a lot of times what we're really experiencing is not Um, real repentance over what we've done, what we're really feeling is self-pity for ourselves over the consequences that it's brought in our lives. So we'll weep and we'll wail and we'll cry and we'll we'll mourn about it, but it's really more about us and not so much about what we've done to someone else. The scary thing about that is that that will never really change our hearts. That that kind of, of remorse will never lead to real life transformation because what'll happen is, okay, maybe we change for a little bit, we change our ways because we had some consequences come into our lives but as soon as things go back to normal we go back to the way we were before we never really were changing our heart what's happening is we're just complying because you know we want to get the heat off of our back real repentance is when your heart is broken not for how your sin hurt you but for how it hurt god and others that's what real repentance is so We've seen real repentance means we take full ownership of our sin, we get out of denial about our capacity for sin, and lastly, we get deep into the heart of sin. And when you put all of those things together, what you have is an encounter with truth. You have an encounter with truth, and when you have an encounter with truth, the truth makes it possible to face our sin. But that just leads to our second point because not only do we need an encounter with truth, we also need an experience of grace. An experience of grace. Because here's the problem. Yes, truth makes it possible to see our sin. When we have an encounter with truth, we can face our sin. But just because it's possible to face our sin doesn't mean that we're really gonna do it. Especially when we really begin to get a glimpse of what sin really is, that it's not just breaking some rules, but relational rejection of God, that is way too traumatic, way too painful to look full on. It's very difficult to face that. A lot of times what happens is it's, it's so overwhelming to us that we'll just run away from it. We need something else to help us really face our sin. What is it? Notice right at the beginning, the very first verse, David prays, have mercy on me, O God. He says, have mercy on me, O God. But how? Why? On what basis does David ask for mercy from God? He says, according to your steadfast love. Now, that word steadfast love is the Hebrew word chesed. We've talked about that word here before. Chesed is the kind of love that it never gives up, never lets go, and never lets you down. It's the kind of love, it's like the terminator of loves. No matter what happens, that's, it's the love that'll just keep coming after you. And I like to call it the terminator of loves because, you know, you could say, well, that's kind of um, intense. Why not the energizer bunny of loves? You know, it takes licking and keeps on ticking. But I I like to call it the terminator of love because there's a fierceness about the terminator, right? It's not a soft, fuzzy little energizer bunny. It is a force to be reckoned with. That's God's covenant love for you because this really is a covenant word. What's a covenant? We don't use that language much in our world anymore, but a covenant is a solemn, legal, binding agreement. It's a promise between two parties And there are conditions attached to that promise so that each party in the covenant says this, it says, if I fail to live up to my conditions, then I will pay the consequences. Everybody in the covenant is saying, if I fail to live up to the conditions, then I will pay the consequences. God's chesed love, his covenant love, the amazing thing about God's love is it's the only love that says, if you fail to live up to the conditions, I will pay the consequences. I will do whatever it takes to make things right. And you see, David knows that's who this God is. And that sets up a paradox right at the beginning of this prayer. Because you notice there are two things going on here. On the one hand, David knows that he's completely undeserving. He's completely unworthy. Have mercy on me, God. I'm completely undeserving. But on the other hand, he knows that God's love is completely unconditional. That is a paradox. And friends, you need both of those things in your life if you're really gonna change. The great preacher, Tim Keller, says that unless you have a sense of both of those things in your life, both that you are completely undeserving and that God's love is completely unconditional, unless you have both of those things in your life, you're never really gonna change. You'll never experience uh, real personal transformation. And he's right. I mean, think about it. If, If all you have in your life is a sense of your own complete unworthiness, but not a sense of God's unconditional love, then you end up living your life in fear. You're just always beating yourself up, hoping against hope, wondering if if it's ever going to be enough that God could possibly forgive you. And, And maybe you'll comply with God's rules, but the only reason you do it is because you're trying to avoid certain consequences in your life. That's living out of fear, and that will never change your heart. But on the other hand, if all you have in your life is a sense of God's unconditional love, but not a sense that you are completely unworthy of that love, then what happens is you walk through life always presuming on God's love, feeling that God's love is something that he owes to you. It actually makes you bitter and angry if things go wrong in your life. You walk through life with a sense of entitlement and and a complete indifference to how your actions actually affect God And other people. The only way you change is if you have a sense of both things in your life, both that you are completely undeserving and that God's love is completely unconditional. You know what that's called? Grace. And it's the gospel. And it's the only thing that will really change us to see that you are completely undeserving and that God's love is completely unconditional. And let me tell you something, that will make you miserable, but it's a good kind of misery. That is the, that's the kind of misery that you want in your life. What do I mean by that? I've been really impacted over the years by uh, something that was written hundreds of years ago by a great English preacher named Stephen Charnock. Uh, he said that David was made miserable, but that he wasn't made miserable by fear. He was made miserable by mercy, and it made all the difference in his life. It led to a transformed life, that he was made miserable by mercy. What does that mean? Stephen Charnock says there's a difference between what he called a legal conviction of sin and a gospel conviction of sin. He says, and I'm going to kind of modernize the language just a little bit, uh, but not too much. He says, a legal conviction of sin cries out, I have exasperated a power that is as the roaring of a lion, a justice that is as the voice of thunder. But he says, a gospel conviction of sin cries out, I have incensed a goodness that is like the dropping of the dew. I have offended a God that had the posture of a friend rather than that of a stern ruler. He said, legal conviction says, I have incurred, I have aroused the anger of a judge. But gospel conviction cries out, I have have abused the tenderness of a father. Do you see the, the difference between those two things? Listen, we need truth in our lives. The truth helps us and makes it possible to face our sin. But if that's all you have, all truth will do all by itself will condemn us. But when you see what happened to David here in this psalm, when you see what he saw, the thing that we all need to see, if we're ever going to really face our sins and experience real life transformation, it's simply this. Truth makes it possible to face our sin, but grace makes it safe. Truth makes it possible to face our sin, but grace makes it safe. That, that we don't just have a judge whose rules we've disobeyed. We have a father whose heart we have broken. Friends, that's grace. But where do we get a grace like that? Did you notice in verse 9, David says to God, hide your face from my sins. And here's the problem with that. You know, God is both a judge and a father. In fact, just because God is a loving father does not mean that he can ignore evil. In fact, if God were to ignore evil, then he really wouldn't be a loving God, would he? So here's the problem. If God is both a father and a judge, how is the judge supposed to hide his face from our sins without the father hiding his face from us? How is that supposed to happen? There's only one way. All of the sacrifices and offerings David talks about in this prayer later on really point forward to the ultimate sacrifice and the ultimate offering that Jesus Christ himself made for us. Because friends, the cross of Jesus Christ is the only place where we can get both the truth that makes it possible and the grace that makes it safe to face our own sin. The cross shows us the truth that that we are far more lost than we ever dared imagine. That we're more lost and alienated from God than, than we ever would have dared imagine. That we're so lost and sinful and alienated from God that, that Jesus Christ had to come to earth and give his life as the just penalty for our sin. That nothing less than the death of the Son of God could atone for our relational rejection of God. You know, that's a hard truth. That's a painful truth. The cross shows us the truth that that we're more lost and sinful than we ever dared imagine, but the cross also shows us grace that we're more loved than we ever dared hope, that Jesus Christ delighted to come and give his life for us because on the cross he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In essence, he was saying, my God, my God, why have you hidden your face from me? Did you notice the doubling of the language there? Jesus doesn't just say, my God, why have you forsaken me? He says, my God, my God. His heart is bound up with this because his heart is bound up with you. Friends, on the cross, Jesus Christ experienced the ultimate forsakenness so that you could experience the ultimate love. On the cross, God turned his face from Jesus in wrath so that he could shine his face in love on you. God was a judge to Jesus on the cross so that he could be a father to you. And when you have that in your life, that's what you need to really walk through all of these steps of repentance to take full ownership for your sin, to get out of denial about your capacity for sin, to get deep into the heart of what sin really is, that it's not just obeying, um, uh, disobeying the rules of a judge, it's breaking the heart of a father. Friends, the only way you will ever do that is if you know that you are utterly totally, unconditionally secure in the love of God. Listen to me, if if your identity and your security in this life is rooted in your performance, in how well you're doing, whether that's how well you're doing morally or relationally or financially or vocationally or whatever it is, if your ultimate identity and security in this life is rooted in, in who you are and what you're doing, then you will never be able to face the truth about yourself because ultimately it will be far too radically threatening to you. You won't be able to do it. The only way you can do it, you'll melt down when you hear the truth because your identity and your security is radically threatened when that happens. There's only one way you can do it. You have to find a way to root your identity and your security in something that can't be threatened, something that can't be taken away from you. Friends, the only place you can get that is in the cross of Jesus Christ. There's your love there's your security, there's your righteousness and it can never be threatened, it can never be taken away from you because it's not rooted in anything that you are or anything that you do. And let me give you the test by which you can know that this is true of you. Um, Here's some simple tests for knowing if you have this. Are there things that people are trying to tell you that are just too threatening for you to hear? Do you get testy or defensive when people criticize you? Or do you shut down or cut people out of your life when they tell you things that are hard to hear, when they tell you things you don't like to hear? Do you have those Nathans in your life, but when they actually do the job you ask them to do, you just cut them off and cut them out of your life? Listen, even if they're like 99% wrong about you, and even if there's only 1% of what they're saying that's true, you need to hear that. Your life transformation depends on you being able to face the truth about yourself. The only way you can face the truth about yourself without melting down is through the gospel. The only way you can do it is if you know that you are utterly, totally secure in Jesus. The truth makes it possible to face our sin, but grace makes it safe. And the only place you can get both the truth and the grace is on the cross of Jesus Christ. Do you have that today And if you don't, will you receive it today? And if you do have that today, fix your heart and your eyes on the deep, deep love of Jesus that he showed to you on the cross where his heart was bound up with you so that your life could be bound up with his. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for a hard word, but a loving word. We thank you for the paradox that's resolved on your cross, Lord, that we are both completely undeserving and yet unconditionally loved in you and that the only place, the only way that can happen is on the cross of Jesus Christ. Father, we pray this morning that you would help us to pray this way, taking full ownership, um, getting out of denial and getting deep into the heart of sin. And we pray that you'd help us to do that by seeing that you did all of it already for us on the cross, Lord Jesus. For we pray these things in your name. Amen.